All right, good morning, church, and happy Easter. I wish, again, I could say it's fantastic to see you. I'm just trusting that you're having a great morning so far. I'm standing here alone in the room at the church, but I'm going to go ahead and say this anyway. It is Easter, so he is risen. Thank you, Johnny. I appreciate that, bro. Uh, I'm just trusting that you guys didn't leave me hanging there or anything like that, but uh, he is risen indeed. And uh, again, I just heard, I just want to say that I love you all, missing you guys like crazy. And again, I do hope it's a fantastic morning that your kids are all hyped up on peeps and chocolate bunnies and all the fun stuff that you do on Easter that has nothing to do with what we're about to talk about right now. Nevertheless, it's a whole lot of fun. And I hope you guys are going to be enjoying today. If you're one of our guests and you're tuning in for maybe the first time or First time I'm in a really long time today. Just wanted to send a special welcome to you and just let you know how grateful I am that you decided to, to tune in and join us today. I'm reminded that on a holiday like Easter, many of you guys may be watching today out of a favor for someone that you love and that church may not really be your thing. And I just want to acknowledge that on the forefront and just say that we're glad that you're here, grateful you've given us your time and just let you know, if we ever had the opportunity to meet all of your doubts, all of your questions, all of your concerns, they would be welcome here, and we would consider it a joy and a privilege to be able to talk with you a little bit further about any of those kinds of things. But we are going to get the ball rolling today. I want to talk a little bit about who Jesus is and why it is that we get so excited about Easter and why we celebrate this and why we, why we worship in response to what God has done for us in this Easter celebration. A little while ago, I was re reading a story by John Bevere. John is an author and a pastor up north, but uh, he tells the story of going to see this famous televangelist from the 1980s who was doing some time in prison, as I guess many televangelists back then were doing, but evidently this joker was thrown in prison at the time for embezzlement and for fraud and uh, things like that. And evidently about five years into his sentence, he had a really, very real come to Jesus moment. And so John had heard about this like a, many, like a lot of other believers had. And so he got very curious. And so he went to go meet him at the prison and ask him about this conversion experience and get to know a little bit of his story. One of the first questions that he had for this televangelist was very simply, he just wanted to know on the forefront, like when was it that you fell out of love for Jesus and you decided to give in to this fraudulent life that you're in and this life of deceit and things like that. That's what he wanted to know. He wanted to know, like, when was the turning point for you? When did you move from being real in your love and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ and then walking away and giving it all up? What did that whole thing look like? And he says that the guy just looked at him with this kind of bewildered look on his face. And he just looks at him and he says, John, like, I never I never fell out of love with Jesus. My problem was never loving Jesus. My problem was that I had no idea who he really was. And he just goes on and he begins to explain himself a little bit further. And he said, John, like, like my problem is the same problem that a lot of people in the church are having today. It's not that they don't love Jesus. Everybody loves the idea of Jesus. It's that they have no idea what that actually means. And you think about what he had to say, and he's absolutely right, is he not? I mean, if you were to go and have an average conversation with someone on the street today, I mean, you're going to talk to a dozen different people and you're going to get a dozen different responses about who they believe Jesus actually is. All of them are going to have affection. All of them are going to say, yeah, Jesus is fantastic. He was wonderful. He was great. He's all these other things. He's my homeboy. Look at the t-shirt. I got the bumper sticker on the back of my car. And they're going to love all these things about Jesus, but there could be no agreement about who he really is. And so like if you, if you ask a Muslim about Jesus, they're going to say, yeah, Isa." Like he's one of the greatest prophets I've ever read about in the Quran. And you talk to a Hindu, they're going to say, yeah, he's one of a million different gods and probably the incarnation of Vishnu. Like that's who he is. 
You talk to a Mormon, they're going to say that he became divine, like you and I can also become divine. You talk to a New Ager or a Buddhist, and they're going to say he's a really, really enlightened man, like you and I can become enlightened men or women. You talk to a Unitarian or even an atheist, they're going to say, yeah, he was a great teacher. He's probably someone you should emulate your life after. You, you, you talk to, you talk to uh, even Christians, they're going to acknowledge that he is the, probably the son of God. He is the son of God, but uh, they're going to say things, they're going to think about him probably more as an add-on or maybe even a, a genie in the bottle that's really only needed if life is out of control. Point of the matter, church, is like no matter who you talk to, there's going to be affection for Jesus. There's just not going to be a whole lot of agreement about who he actually is. Meanwhile, Jesus is going to come in and he's going to say some really, really contradictory things in the word of God. He's going to say, like, I and the Father are one. And then he's going to say things like, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then on top of that, the Bible's going to come in and it's going to say that everything we believe about Jesus and everything that we do together as a church body, like all of it, depends totally and completely on everything that we're celebrating today. I mean, Paul's going to say that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is completely worthless. In other words, like this is the issue on which everything else hangs. Like this is the Super Bowl of all Sundays. We've talked about that a, a number of times before. Like this is the issue on which everything else hangs. Like it's not a metaphor for how to overcome really, really difficult things in our lives. Like it's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God in his infinite love for humanity loved us so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and to live the sinless life that you and I could not live. And to willingly go to the cross, to suffer, to bleed, and to die is a substitute for you and for me because that's what our sin deserves. And then three days later, he literally and physically walked out of that tomb alive. I mean, church, like what in the world are we doing? Like if he's not really alive today, like what are we doing if none of this stuff is true? Like why in the world will we sing and travel halfway around the world to have awkward conversations with people about Jesus? Like if he's still sitting there dead in the grave, Like, where in the world is the power if he doesn't have power over the grave? Where in the world is hope if he can't do anything about our sin? And what the Bible says about itself is that if this didn't really happen, then our entire faith is completely worthless. But here it is, church. If it did, then it absolutely changes everything. I love the way Tim Keller talks about this. He says, he says, Easter makes Christianity the most irritating religion on the face of the earth. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then you have to accept everything that he said. The issue with Jesus is not whether or not, it's not about whether or not you like his teaching. It's on whether or not he literally and physically rose from the dead. And so church, that's what we want to get into this morning. I want to take a look at that. Um, and uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open it with me this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 20 today, talking about how Jesus just moves us from doubt into belief. And honestly, church, I just want to let you know how I've been praying for us up front. My hope and prayer is that wherever you are today, maybe you've been a long-term believer and you've heard the resurrection story a million times over. My hope and prayer is that God would meet you in the middle of this season that you're in, that he would strengthen your faith all the more, that you would be reminded of, of, of the confidence that we can have in the resurrected Christ today and that you'd be able to walk in him and you'd be able to rest in him today like you never have before. Maybe you're a doubter, maybe you're a skeptic and you've come in and this has never really been your cup of tea, that God would meet you in this place. And then as we get into the, the story of the resurrection, that he would move you from doubt into faith. And so if you have your Bibles again, John chapter 20 is where we're going to be. We're going to go from 19 through 25. 
But at this point in the passage, Mary, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who doesn't really get named at this point in time, they've already discovered the empty tomb. They've already had their first encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ. They've already gone back to the disciples and told all the disciples about him. But at this point in time, the rest of the disciples have not seen the resurrected Jesus. And so we read in verse 19, it says this, On the evening of the first day of that week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. Now, Thomas, who was also known as Didymus, which probably explains why he goes by Thomas there, but anyway, he was one of the twelve, and it says that he was not with the other disciples when Jesus first came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and I put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, I don't know if you've ever put your foot in your mouth before. Maybe it's online or something like that. You said something you really shouldn't have said, and it just lingers and lingers, and it's online for the rest of your life. Like This is one of these experiences there for Thomas. I mean, he blows it one time, and it gets recorded in the rest of Scripture for the rest of the world for, to, to hear over and over again. And really for the rest of his days, he's, he's going to be known as Doubting Thomas. That's the nickname that he's going to go by that all of us know him by. It's not Faithful Thomas. It's not church planning Thomas. It's not Thomas the Evangelist or anything like that. It's just Thomas Doubting Thomas, like the worst nickname that any of us could ever have. But I feel bad for him a little bit because we know throughout Scripture and even in the course of our lives that Thomas is not the only one who's ever battled with doubt. We know this even from Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. This is just after the resurrection. And it says this, it says that the other disciples, they went to the mountaintop that Jesus had told them to go to. And even when they saw him, some immediately worshiped, but some of them still doubted. In other words, like even among the other disciples, like there's some who's immediately worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. They're seeing the resurrected Christ right in front of them and immediately they're entering in by faith and they're worshiping the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's some of them who are still having a hard time with this because it's just not every day that you see someone who's crossed from death into life. But again, church, like this is how faith works, is it not? I mean, you look around you and it seems like some of us, like, some of us are able to come into faith very easy. I mean, it seems like for some of us, like you're born and the first words out of your mouth are praise Jesus, hallelujah, that kind of a thing. You're singing out of the womb and like, boom, for you, faith is really easy. Maybe you saw it modeled really, really well at home and what your parents practiced was also what they preached. And so maybe for some of you, faith was very, very easy. For others of us, like it just was never really the case. A little while ago, I was reading this blog called Why I Don't Believe in God, which I thought was a fascinating blog to, to hear about the different reasons people were writing in about why they can't believe in the God of the Bible, especially. But one person wrote in and simply said this. It said, I feel that religion has outgrown its usefulness when science became as accurate as it is today. And so do many other people my age, he explains. Personally, I'll never believe in anything that I cannot see. I'll never have true faith in anything. There's another person that wrote in and that may not be your thing. You may not just be, hey, I'm only what I see. I'm only what I can experience and touch and taste and experience with my senses. But another person wrote in, and for them, it was more the problem of pain. It was things like what a lot of us are experiencing today. Like how in the world can a good and holy, loving God not intervene right now in the middle of a pandemic? I mean, for some of us, like that's the big problem. Why in the world did he not save this person in my life that I love with all of my heart, with everything about me? 
Why in the world did he not enter in and stop this horrific thing from taking place? Many of us are there today. We're inter- interacting with a lot of the students, and for a lot of our students that we talked to today, like this is the issue that's tripping them up a whole lot. Like, where's God in the middle of this pandemic? Where's God in the middle of this job loss? Like, where's God in the middle of all this reduction in income? Does he not know what I'm going through? Does he not actually care? And for some of us, like, that's the thing that trips us up and creates all kinds of doubt in us, which we bring to the table and keep us from being able to enter into worship of the one true God. For other people, they're looking at at the church and other Christians that they know, and for them, it's not necessarily an academic debate or something like that, but it's really the hypocrisy of believers that they've known. And they're looking around and they're saying, okay, they're they're hearing some of the claims of Jesus Christ and they're saying, how do I recognize what I know about, how do I reconcile what I know about Jesus and what I'm actually seeing in some of the believers who say that they follow him? I mean, some of these things that are taking place in the church and by people who profess to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are absolutely horrific. Like, how in the world do I reconcile those two things? And so the point of the matter, church, is that like, it's not just like doubt is not something that's unique to Thomas. Like this is a thing that we all have intimate experience with. We've all battled with at some point in some form or fashion at some point in our life. And so what I want you to see here is I want you to notice how Jesus comes and he engages his doubt because he's not terrified by it. It says this in verse 26. A week later, it says that his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, and I want you to see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. And what I love about this little interaction right here again is that Jesus is not angry at Thomas's doubt. He's not scared and he's not running away. He's not avoiding the conversation or pretending that these aren't legitimate questions. Like he just comes in right there. He walks into the room and he simply says, peace be with you, Thomas. And then he stands in front of him and he says, Thomas, if you need to touch me to believe, then, then touch me to believe. You need to look at the nail scars on my hands, then take a look at my hands. You need to touch my sides, then come and touch my sides. If you need to ask your questions, then come and ask your questions. You need to talk about all kinds of things that, that you're not able to reconcile in your mind, then let's come and let's talk. You can come and you can examine me. However, whatever you do, stop your doubting and believe. I mean, after all, church, like, if, like faith and doubt, like they're, they're two sides of the exact same coin. Like that's all that they are. Like if you're able to doubt, then you're able to believe. If you're able to be a person of doubt, then you're able to be a person of faith. And if you're able to have faith, then you're able to be a person who doubts. I mean, think about how Webster defines this. Webster's going to say doubt is a lack of confidence in someone or something. Like that's what it is. It's a lack of confidence in someone or something. Faith, on the other hand, is pretty much the same thing on the opposite side. It's the state of having a complete confidence in someone or something, right? In other words, like doubt is an expression of faith because all doubt is, is faith expressed in something different. Like it's why, it's why Rick Warren is always going to say, um, everyone walks by faith and everyone's betting their life on something. That's what he always says. Like everyone walks by faith and everyone's betting on something. The question that you and I have to ask is, what is it that you're willing to bet your life on? I mean, that, that's the question that we all have to answer. Some of us, he says, are betting on morality in order to save us. Some of us are betting on a law. Like some of us, like some of us are betting that if God, doesn't, if God does exist, then he really can't be known and he really doesn't care what you do or what you believe. Some of us are betting on the fact that maybe there's nothing that exists in the end. 
And then believers are sitting here and we're betting it all on Jesus that he really did live and die and that he really did walk out of the tomb alive. But church, like that's the beauty of Easter. Like the beauty of Easter is that we're not talking about blind faith here. We're not talking about a God who is sitting off in the clouds and he's saying, good luck as you try to figure this out. We're talking about God who in his infinite love sent his one and only son to be born at a certain time in history. A man who could be seen, who could be talked to, who could be touched, who could be prodded, who could be listened to, who could be examined over and over and over again. Church, we're talking about eyewitness testimony of a very real person at a very real time in history who was crucified, dead, and buried, and now we have a tomb that's empty and a body that's never been found. Church, that's what we're talking about here. Like, what in the world do we do with the empty tomb? Like, who do you say that Jesus is? Like, what do you do with the empty tomb? Like, I, I mean, I, I know we're, we're living in this time right now where we love a good conspiracy theory, do we not? Like, what's really happening? What's really true? Like, we love to come up with these stories about what's, what we think is really going on. Church, like, what in the world do you think really took place that day? I, I mean, the easiest way to prove this entire thing is a lie. All you got to do is, is show us a body. Like, give us a plausible argument, a plausible story of what took place. I mean, the most powerful and motivated government in the world, the Romans, they weren't able to do that in a satisfying way. I mean, the Roman guards that were there that day, they were watching the tomb, and they had no explanation for what took place. I mean, the best that they were able to come up with is, hey, the disciples stole this body while we were there sleeping. I mean, that's the best thing that they were able to come up with. We read about it in Matthew chapter 28, but literally that's what they come up with. Well, these trained Roman soldiers whose only job is to protect the tomb from people coming and raiding that grave and stealing the body. Like they fell asleep on the job. And while they were sleeping right next to this giant rock that was blocking the entryway to this tomb, like all these disciples snuck past them, moved this giant rock, and they hauled off this body all the while these trained Roman soldiers never woke up. I mean, church, can we just think about that for a second? Like, does that even make any sense? Like, how in the world does this whole thing go down? I mean, meanwhile, like, no one's telling that story. There's no eyewitnesses coming and saying, yeah, we saw the disciples do that. Here's where they actually took the body or anything like that. Like, like how in the world do they pull that off? How in the world does a group of disciples come and move a giant boulder that takes multiple people to put a place in the first place? How in the world do they come there? And you've got trained Roman guards laying right next to it. Do they move that thing away? without waking those trained Roman guards up. And then think about the linens that are there in the tomb. I mean, when Mary Magdalene and the ladies get to the tomb, they find the linens that are there neatly folded and sitting in place. Church, when in the world have you ever known a group of men to fold anything? Like, are you kidding me? That doesn't make any sense. We don't fold anything, much less if there's a fear that, hey, uh, I'm in a hurry to steal this body, and if I'm caught, these Roman guards are going to kill us. Like that doesn't make, can you imagine like Peter inside the grave and all of a sudden he's just going, you know what guys, hey, can we just hold on a second? I, I, I really want to get rid of these linens. I could much rather carry a mutilated body that's been rotting for three days out of here past these guards who are about to kill us if they take it. Like, I'd rather take the time to do that. Now, does that even make any sense? I mean, besides that church, like why in the world would they do that? What, 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 why would they come and steal that body? I mean, a lot of people want to say, well, maybe it's because it's about money and power. Isn't that what cult leaders do? They're all about money. They're all about power. Like they want control and things like that. I mean, the problem is, church, that the apostles never gained any of those things. I mean, Paul's going to write about it, and he's going to say, God appointed we apostles to be the lowest of the low, to, to, to have the least amount of power, to be the, the most despised people on the planet. Why? So that we can demonstrate that our hope is not in this life, but our hope is in the resurrection that's still to come. In other words, like, in other words, like, like that's not what you do if you're trying to get power and control. So what is it then? Is it, hey, this is a group of people that just wanted to start this arbitrary religion so they could control people? 
Church, like if control is your motivating force, you never talk about grace. You don't say things like it is by God's grace that you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a free gift of God so that none of us are able to boast. Like if you're trying to control people's lives, you throw law at them. You say, you need to do this, that, and the other. You need to give me this. You need to give me this amount of money. You need to elevate me this. You manipulate and control, and you do all these kinds of things. You don't talk about, hey, it is by God's grace that you're saved through faith. That's it. You don't need to do anything to earn it. Like, you don't control people in that way. Literally, it's the worst strategy in the world if control is your motivation. Church, what in the world happened that day? Uh, you got to understand, the apostles gained absolutely nothing from what took place that day, and they lost everything. Like you've got to understand, like, because of this story that they were telling, like, Peter would end up being crucified and put to death, and he was crucified upside down for holding to the story that Jesus walked out of that tomb alive, and that he really is the, the, the promised Son of God, the King of all kings, and the Lord of all lords. I mean, a week earlier, he would watch his wife die the exact same way, and neither one of them would recant on their faith. Even Thomas, who's doubting right here in the middle of this moment, Doubting Thomas would end up being martyred after years of evangelism and church planning among militant Hindu groups in India. And granted, church, you got to hear me like, yes, there are other martyrs, martyrs of other faiths and people who do die for lies. But here's the difference, church. You don't die for something you know beyond a shadow of a doubt is a lie. These are men and women that walked with Jesus. These were men and women that were there at the empty tomb. They know what's absolutely true about the story. You don't die for something that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt is a lie. I love the way Chuck Colson talks about this. He says, like, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it for me, he says. You know, want to know how? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would have not endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles couldn't, could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Church, like, what in the world do we do with the empty tomb? Like, this is the day at Easter we need to be reminded of the strength of our convictions. Like, what in the world do you do with the empty tomb? Like, some people honestly think that this is a giant dream or hallucination or something like that. I don't know if there's a rave back then in the first century. I don't know what took place. But some people think, hey, all these people dreamed it up. I mean, the problem with that, that whole theory is that like, there's over 500 witnesses of the resurrection, Church, it's not just the disciples. There's over 500 witnesses, people all telling the exact same story. Like some people think that, hey, well, okay, well, maybe Jesus wasn't actually dead on the cross. Maybe he just, he was kind of swooning or partially dead. And then he woke up later on in the tomb and he just walked out of the tomb alive. Kind of like the, the, the princess bride theory. He's, he's mostly dead or something like that, right? I love the way, um, there's a woman who wrote J. Vernon McGee this letter. And I love this letter, but she writes and says, Dr. McGee, uh, my pastor said that on Easter, Jesus was almost dead on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think about that explanation? <laughs> so McGee replies, and he says, Dear sister, please beat your pre preacher with a leather whip uh, for 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his heart and balm him. Put him, on an put him in an airless tomb for three days and then tell me what happens. Point of the matter, church, is like, none of that makes any sense. Like, are you kidding me? Like, that's physically impossible to actually do. Church, something happened that day. What in the world happened at the empty tomb? And, and here it is. Every single Easter, we have to come and we examine the evidence and we're reminded that, hey, he doesn't ask us to walk in total and complete blind faith. We have the fact of his life and his death and his resurrection to examine. Church, like, something happened that day. 
Like this becomes the event that goes on and it changes everything for the rest of history. I mean, there's this, fa- there's this fascinating story in Acts chapter 5 where a bunch of people in the courts, they're debating about what to do with the apostles and the disciples who are preaching the resurrection. They're stirring up all this commotion. They're telling the story. They're saying, hey, this Jesus Christ who, pro- who claimed to be the son of God, this one that you all put to death, you saw him crucified, dead, and buried. He's now alive. And it's creating all this stir. The Roman authorities, they're not having it or anything like that. And so these people are debating about what do we do about this? How do we put an end to this whole thing? And this guy named Gamaliel, he'll st- he stands up and he says, hey, he goes, hey guys, slow down, slow down. If you remember from a little while ago, he talks about this guy named Thutis. There was this guy named Thutis who rose up and he claimed to be someone big. And he had a massive following of about 400 people. And he says, you guys remember what happened to him? Thutis died. And as soon as he died, all of his followers, they also scattered, and so did his movement. It became nothing. And he goes on and he says, uh, a little while after that, there was a guy named Judas of Galilee who claimed to be someone else. He did the exact same thing. But you remember what happened with him. He passed away, and so all of his, all of his followers ended up scattering. Church, Wikipedia is going to talk about 80 different people that were living somewhere around the time of Jesus. They were all claiming the exact same thing. I'm the promised Messiah. I am the King of Kings. I'm the one that the Old Testament prophesied about. And the reality is that as soon as every single one of those men died, so did their movements. And so Gamaliel comes on the scene and he says this. He says, in this present case, he says, stay away from these people. Leave them alone. For if their plan is of man, then it will be overthrown. But if it's of God, you won't won't be able to overthrow them. And you may even be found fighting against God. So church, let me ask you this question. Like, did the message ever die out? Of course not. It's why we're here still celebrating this day. We're sitting here in Dallas, Texas, and we are singing, and we are celebrating, and we are taking communion because our God is alive. He is the King of all kings, and he is the Lord of all lords. On Friday night, the disciples were terrified and afraid for their lives, and they could not be more depressed. But Sunday came, and the tomb is now empty, and he revealed himself to the disciples and over 500 other eyewitnesses, and the disciples do a complete 180, and they move from doubt into faith, and revival starts spreading all around the world. Church, like, what do you do with the empty tomb? Like what, what, like, what do you do? Like, when you've seen the resurrected King of all kings and Lord of all lords, and he's standing there, and he's saying, you've got doubts and you've got questions. Come and ask me these questions. Like, what do you do with the evidence, church? Like, this is the only thing that makes sense is that you give your life away, and you tell everyone you can that my king is alive. And church, I, I'm telling you, like, I'll, I'll never forget the date, December 14th, 2000. Like, this is a day that I'll never forget because this is a day that, that everything in my life absolutely changed. It was the day that I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was going to marry my wife. I remember December 14th is her birthday. And I remember coming back to this day and it was in the early days of college. And I'll explain it like this. I was a terrible gift giver back then. I think I've shared some of this stuff in the past. But it was her birthday and we'd only been dating a few months at this point in time, but we'd gotten to know each other pretty well. But at this point in our relationship, like I was pretty sure that I really, really cared about this girl. I liked her a whole lot. I didn't know what love was exactly. I didn't know how to name it or anything like that, but it's her birthday and it's December 14th. And all I'm going to say about these gifts, church, like they were absolutely horrible gifts. It was a terrible gift to give her as a poor college student. I'm not kidding. I went to Hobby Lobby. I bought a piece of wood and a, a wood graving pen. And I carved something in this piece of wood that looked like a, like a kindergarten, like a, like a craft or something like that. But anyway, I wrapped up all these gifts and I go to her house. And, and I remember giving her these three gifts. One was a pink fuzzy <laughs> steering wheel. The other one was a, 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 a zebra striped fuzzy vest. It was horrific, church. I'm telling you, I apologize for even sharing that with you. But I can remember sitting there in her living room and being so overjoyed at giving her these gifts for her birthday. 
And she opens up these gifts, and, you know, she was very gracious, and she was kind of putting on a smile and saying, oh, thanks, this vest is exactly what I wanted. And she plays along for a little while, and, and uh, I remember just being so filled with joy, and something was happening that day. She walked down to go show her parents and to talk with them, and, and immediately I picked up my phone, and I called my parents, and I said, hey, guys, just wanted to let you know, today uh, I figured out that I'm going to marry this girl. And church, I'm telling you, like, it, like everything changes when you move from, hey, I'm probably sure about this thing, and you move from pretty sure to absolutely certain about what we're going to do. Church, everything changed that day when you move from pretty sure to absolutely certain. It's exactly what we're seeing take place in these disciples. They're going from, I think I know who, the king, I think I know who this Jesus is. Like, I, I think I know. I've been watching him. I've been seeing all these different miracles. I've been seeing him, I've been seeing him follow up all these different prophecies. I've been seeing the, the authority in which he teaches God's word. I've been seeing the way that he touches the blind, and they're all of a sudden able to see. The way that he touches the lame, and they're all of a sudden able to walk. I, I've been seeing the different promises that take place. I'm pretty sure about who he is. But there, as he's standing right before them, uh, they, all that doubt and all that uncertainty, even the pretty sure, and moves to confident belief as they're looking at the king of kings and he's standing before them resurrected and there's this empty tomb that's no longer, there's no longer a body inside and then they're sitting there going like, what in the world do we do with this empty tomb? Like all of a sudden, all that doubt floods into belief as they're staring at Jesus and Thomas is looking at him and he's going, oh my gosh, he's really alive. Like he's really standing here. I heard all the rumors and he's standing there in my living room alive. He really is the son of God. And what this means is like, if he really is a son of God, then it means that he really does have power over sin and death. And if he really does have power over sin and death, then what that means is that everything he's been saying about himself is absolutely true, that my past doesn't have to condemn me, and in my present, I can be totally and completely set free. Paul's gonna talk about this in Romans 4.25. He's gonna say that he was delivered over to death for our sins, but he was raised to life for our justification. In other words, church, like, like none of what took place 2,000 years ago was an accident. Like, like he was not a victim of an angry mob. Jesus died on the cross for our sins because that's what our sin demands. But he was raised to life for our justification so that you and I can be totally and completely set free. That we could be declared righteous before a holy God. Not because we are righteous or we ever have the hope of being righteous in and of ourselves, but because he alone is righteous. And that's what he gifts us when we come to him in genuine faith. And church, some of us are listening to that right now and you're sitting there going, yeah, Aaron, that sounds fantastic. Like that sounds like one of those stories that you say to one another so that you can feel better about the pain of today and some of the things that you've done in your past. And some of you are sitting there kind of going, you're like, yeah, that sounds fantastic. That sounds like a fable that my parents read me when I was a little kid. Some of you are kind of going, hey, that sounds great, but you don't really know the things that I've done in my past. I mean, I'll never forget the conversation I had with someone in the apartment complexes next door a little while ago. We were out there doing four Sunday evangelism as we often did. And I was talking with this one person. We were explaining the gospel. He was very, very engaged. He was intrigued by everything we were talking about. And then he just comes and you can just see his, hang, his head hanging a little bit low. And he comes in and he just goes, and I asked him about that. And I said, hey, I was like, where are you right now? What's keeping you from saying yes to Jesus? And he just, he just looked up and he just goes, bro, you don't, you don't know the extent of it. You don't know the things that I've done. And some of us are asking, and we're, we're, we're saying the exact same thing, like grace sounds fantastic, forgiveness sounds fantastic, cleansing sounds fantastic, all these other things, but the reality is like you don't know the things that are on my list. 
And the reality, church, is like, you're exactly right. I have no idea how long that list is, how specific that list is, the things that are on there. But here's what I know about grace. There's nothing you can do to out God's grace. And the reason I can stand here today confident and tell you like there's nothing you can do to out God's grace is because the Bible is filled with story after story after story of people who've tried and God keeps going after them and he keeps pursuing them and he keeps giving them grace and saving them and setting them free and giving them a brand new future. I mean, it's Thomas' story right here. He's doubting and he's saying, hey, I'll believe it when I see it. And God comes in and he says, fine, you need a little bit more proof. Here I am. Like, ask your questions. Touch the holes that are there in my hands. Touch my side. And he goes and, and, and he gives him faith. And then he redeems his story and he goes on to become this pillar in the early church. It's Paul. Like, like Paul's gonna say, I'm the worst of sinners, church. And you gotta understand, like when Paul says I'm the worst of sinners, he's not being dramatic about that. He actually means that. He was a murdering, hateful, bigoted, abusive persecutor of the church. None of us would have liked him before he came to know Jesus. Peter is the same way. Like three days earlier, he denies even knowing who Jesus is. Like that's not a person of valor right there. Like Mary Magdalene, possessed by seven different demons. Church, can you even imagine what it would be like to be possessed by seven different demons? You know what that's called? It's called an enormous amount of baggage that you've been carrying your entire life. What that means is like people are looking at you and they're casting you off. They're minimizing you. They're gossiping about your life. They're saying that your life is done. Like that's who Mary Magdalene was. It was the woman that no one else wanted to be around because she was so afflicted by the things that were going on in her life. And Jesus comes into her life and he touches her and he gives her faith and completely transforms her story. And she goes on to become one of the most faithful followers of Jesus Christ that we're still reading about to this day. But church, that's the reality of what he does because there's nothing you can do to out his grace. And so here's Thomas in the middle of our story. In the middle of all this doubt, what I want you to see is that Jesus doesn't get angry and he doesn't run away. He doesn't get frustrated with this thing. He just simply comes into this room and he says, Thomas, peace be with you. You need a little bit more time, come and touch my hands. You need a little bit more time, come and touch my side. You need to vent some of your frustrations of what you've seen and people who bear my name. You need to ask some of your questions about things that you're not able to reconcile in your mind. I'm right here, just whatever you do, stop doubting and believe. And church is exactly what Thomas does. Immediately he begins to doubt all of his doubts. He begins to look around at the nail-scarred hands and the wounds in Jesus' side. He begins to think about the reality of an empty tomb, and he just looks at Jesus, and he makes this confession that I am hoping and praying many of you are going to be making for the very first time today. But he looks up at Jesus, and he simply says this, my Lord and my God, that is who you are, my Lord and my God. Church, what else in the world are you going to say when the tomb's empty? Church, what else are you going to say to the man who's been calling this shot and saying, you want to know who I am? Like, tear down the temple and three days later, I'm going to rebuild it. Like, what else do you say to the man who called his shot and is now standing in front of you, crucified, dead, and buried, and now very much alive, except my Lord and my God. My life is yours. And it's exactly what Jesus does. He breathes life into them. He redeems him, and he goes on to become this pillar in the early church. Church, every single year at this time, I always love to remind us of a number of different facts that scholars of all different types of faiths all believe are true about the historical Jesus. 
And I love this because it's evidence that Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel, they always say it's evidence that demands a verdict. But here's what we all know and understand about Jesus. He was a literal, physical, historical figure who lived a virtuous life during the time of Tiberius Caesar. His reputation was that he was at least a great teacher, and he was also a miracle worker who accomplished amazing things among people that they were not able to explain naturally. (laughs) He had a brother named James, and I love this one, who was not a believer in the deity of Jesus Christ until after the resurrection. So can you just think about that one for a second? Like, what would it take for you to convince your brothers and sisters that you were the son of God? I've literally been, I've been trying for a really long time. I've never been successful about that. But that's what everybody understands. Like he had a brother named James who was not a believer in the deity of Jesus until after the resurrection. Church, what took place at the tomb that day? Like hundreds who knew and followed Jesus, they claimed that he was the Messiah both during and after his life. They continue on and say that we all agree that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate on the eve of the Jewish Passover because he claimed that he was the Messiah. In other words, some people are saying, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified because of his claims that he was the promised Messiah. Darkness fell over the earth, factually. Darkness fell over the earth at noon that day, and an earthquake occurred as soon as he breathed his last. This is at noon in the middle of the day. That's kind of coincidental. The disciples were devastated, depressed, and afraid when he was crucified. In other words, they weren't out there plotting about how to begin a brand new religion. Jesus was buried in a tomb by an unbelieving Jew named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is kind of like this Jewish Supreme Court, if you will, uh, meaning that he, this is not a conspiracy. He was not friends of the disciples. He was not part of a plot to begin something brand new. Two Roman guards were there protecting that grave that day from being robbed. Three days later, the tomb was actually empty. No body was ever found. And the disciples did a complete 180 on that exact day. They all claimed that he rose from the dead. Nearly 500 other people gave the exact same story immediately after the crucifixion. The common day of worship moved from Saturday to Sunday in recognition of the resurrection. And all the disciples would spend the rest of their lives spreading that message. And every single one of them would eventually die for that message. Church, that's the strength of the Easter story. And I don't know if you needed a little bit more confidence in what it is that we say we believe, but this is the strength of the Easter story. Church, we're not talking about blind faith when we come and we celebrate Easter year after year after day year. We're not talking about this neat little story we like to tell in order to pump each other up. We're talking about something that actually happened. Church, it literally and physically happened. There was a a God who in his infinite love sent Jesus. He lived and he died as a substitute for us. Three days later, he walked out of that tomb alive. There's still no body that's ever been found. And And it demands this question, church, what in the world do you do with the empty grave? Like it really, really happened. And the reality is that because it actually happened, like you and I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he lives today and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has now set you free from the law of sin and death. Because he lives, church, you and I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is still with you today in the middle of this pandemic, in the middle of your fear, in the middle of all the questions regarding your financial hardships or your future or your sickness and what's going to come about from that. In the middle of this thing, the fact that he lives today means that he lives and is present with you today in the middle of this thing. And he's not a God who is devoid of pain that has no idea what it's actually like. He's a God who comes in the middle, comes to us in the middle of our pain to be with us in the middle of this pain, to bring us out of that pain for the praise and glory of his name. Church, that's what he does. And so the question that's before us today 
And really, it's like this every single day is simply, what do you do with the empty tomb? Who in the world do you say that Jesus really is? Anne Rice was an outspoken agnostic when she set out to discover what actually happened in the first century. She's the author of a, many, uh, a number of those vampire books that are out there, but a little while ago, she, she asked the question, you know, what happened in that first century? She writes about her journey as a skeptic in her book called Christ the Lord. How did a group of Jewish peasants launch the greatest religious movement in history? It's a fantastic question to ask. How did a group of Jewish peasants launch the greatest religious movement the world has ever known? Here was her conclusion about Jesus, which is mine, and I'm hoping and praying is yours as well. She says, Christianity achieved what it did because Jesus actually rose from the dead. It was the fact of the resurrection that sent the apostles out into the world with the force necessary to create Christianity. Nothing else would have done it but that. I'm going to invite you to pray with me right now, but Father, we do agree with that confession right now. God, we love you and we praise you. And Lord, today as we celebrate Easter, we remember that this isn't just a fairy tale that we like to tell. It's not a myth that we pass down from one generation to the next. There's Jesus, a real person in history. There's his life, his death, and his crucifixion. The reality that three days later there was a tomb and it's now empty and no body's ever been found. Father, we do praise you and thank you that you saw fit to draw near to us in the middle of our wandering, in the middle of our sin, in the middle of our despair. God, you saw fit to give us grace. You weren't content to stay far away, but you entered in through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we praise you. We give you thanks. We give you glory today. And church, if you're listening right now, I just want to give you a minute. Would you just sit there and reflect on some of the things that we've talked about today? And would you just come up with an answer to what is your side of the story? Who do you say that Jesus really is today? Is he the king of all kings? Is he the Lord of all lords? Is he the great I am? Is he the promised son of God? All these things which he said about himself. Is he lying about the entire thing? Is he crazy and just deceived by the whole thing? Church, who do you say that he is? You know, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you too will be saved. And church, I just want to be speaking to the person right now that you knew as soon as you turned the TV on that God had something for you today. You've been stirring in this doubt and you've been sensing that he's been trying to draw you out of that thing. You've been pressing in and you've been hearing some of these things and you've been, you've been, he's been revealing himself to you a little bit more and more each day. The word of God says that you can be saved today if you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved from your sins today. And church, I just want to give you this opportunity right now. Maybe some of you guys need to do that today. If that's you and you can see you, today, you, wanna, you want this to be the day that you say yes to Jesus for the very first time in your life, I just want to invite you, would you pray this prayer with me? And just simply say, Jesus, I believe in you. I do, Jesus, I believe in you, that you are the Son of God. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are who you say that you are. I believe that you were crucified, that you were dead and buried, and that three days later, you really did walk out of that tomb alive proving that you are who you say that you are, proving that you have power over sin and death. And so, Jesus, I'm asking you today, would you give me this grace that I've heard about? Would you wash me completely clean? Would you forgive me of all of my sin? And would you come into my life and would you make me brand new? You know, the Bible says that if you pray that prayer today and 
You actually meant it. You came to him in genuine, repentant faith. And the Bible says that you've been given the right to be called a child of God, that you're, you're a brand new creation, that you've crossed over from death into life. The old has passed away and the, the new has come. If that's you today and you've made that profession of faith for the very first time, I want to encourage you wherever you are, would you tell someone that you're, that you're watching with today? We'd love to hear about it. If you're online, there's a button on, online that you can push right there. We would love to follow up with you and help you grow in your new relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But for the rest of us, maybe this is the thousandth time that you've heard the resurrection story. My hope and prayer today is that your faith would grow and that you would stand in confidence that he is alive and that he really is who he says that he is. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would come, you would breathe life into your church today. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you this day, and it's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray, amen and amen.